My best friend Meg and I live an hour away from each other. Between working and motherhood, it can often be a struggle to get together during the day, so sometimes we decide to catch a late movie at a theater that is about halfway between us. The drive to this particular theater takes me through a maze of back roads before I'm able to get on the highway. I pass by numerous quaint little shops and old, haunted-looking houses on my way, but there is one antique shop that always grabs my attention. I spent years driving by this shop, but never stopped at it. Antiquing isn't really my thing. Even if it was, I usually drive by long after the doors have been locked for the evening, so the opportunity was never there. That is, until recently. I was driving through the back roads one sunny afternoon when the antiques sign came into view. The kids were at home with their dad and I was by myself, so I pulled into the gravel driveway and parked without really knowing what I was looking for or why I'd stopped. I recalled a conversation I had with Jamie about talismans, so I made interesting as fuck jewelry the goal of my visit. The shop was, well, I'm not even sure shop is the right word to describe it. It was like five small houses were pushed together to form a bigger building with a few shabby sheds scattered on what used to be the yards. Eight entrances, eight stores, within each old structure, and eight shop owners. Walking through the antique village was confusing, as if the Goblin King himself were challenging me to get out. There were stairs that led to nowhere, the floorboards varied in height between the units, windows that seemed to be placed on the walls in the same manner that a child would place stickers on their chest of drawers, and rooms that were packed to the ceiling with antiques. On top of this, shopkeepers, unintentionally hidden by their inventory, kept startling me with their greetings soon after I crossed the threshold of each new unit. I was quickly overwhelmed with anxiety and left without purchasing anything and without any desire to ever return. A few weeks later, Meg and I met up at the theater to catch a late movie. It was after midnight by the time I was on the road headed home and I was tired. Midway through my drive, I saw the antique shop up ahead and marveled at how eerie it looked bathed in orange lamplight, like the cover of a classic mystery novel. I habitually checked my mirrors to see how the kids were doing in the back seat and smiled when my eyes met a sweet young face. It took me a second to remember that it was late and my kids were at home, sleeping. I whipped my head around and saw no one. The car seats were empty. There was no young girl. I rubbed my eyes and turned them back to the road, thinking I was just tired. Perhaps since I was expecting to see a child in the back seat, my mind simply filled in the blank. I tried to forget it, but my dumbass self couldn't resist looking in the mirror to see if she was still there. She was. She was perfect. She wore a perfectly pressed dress with puffy sleeves, a white collar, and a smocked bodice. It was hard to see the colors in the dim orange glow of the streetlights, but I knew the dress was a perfect periwinkle. Though it fit her perfectly, she seemed far too old to be wearing such a juvenile-looking outfit. She was a preteen in a toddler's dress. Pale hands folded perfectly in her lap. She sat up perfectly straight. Her hair was perfectly smooth, straight, and black, neatly tied up with a perfect little bow that matched the dress. Perfectly straight bangs almost grazed her dark eyes. Her appearance was a stark contrast to my blue-eyed, curly-haired, blonde children. She didn't speak, only giving me a perfect warm smile when our eyes met as she sat perfectly still in between my kids' car seats. 
The panic was physically manifesting itself inside my body. She never took her eyes off of me. Every time I glanced in my mirror and met her eyes, her gaze seemed to become more and more intense. To put it simply, she had crazy eyes. My heart pounded loudly in my ears as I tried to pluck an organized thought out of my head, which felt as successful as trying to pluck a slippery fish out of a rushing river. She was in my car. My car that should be my ticket out of a scary situation. How could I escape if she was with me? I cycled through my options. I could keep driving and pretend she wasn't there. I could try to speak to her and determine her purpose of her presence, or I could pull over and run. I was approaching a thickly wooded area, so that last one didn't seem like the smartest idea. The moonlight became obstructed by forest and I was plunged into unsettling darkness. I couldn't see my back seat anymore, but I could still feel her staring at me. Maybe she needed help. Should I talk to her? She hadn't done anything to threaten me, but I was too creeped to even consider the gamble. I settled on ignoring her. The rest of the drive, I only used my side mirrors, not daring to peep into my rearview mirror. The image of her dark eyes boring into my soul was burned into my mind. Every noise and every movement out of my peripherals sent my heart rate higher and higher. I kept expecting small hands to close around my neck from behind or hear a soft voice call out my name. I felt incredibly vulnerable because of my inability to close my eyes, cover my ears, or defend myself while I was driving. When I finally pulled into the safety of my driveway and parked, I squeezed my eyes shut as the cabin lights turned on when I opened my door and sprinted into my house. I slammed the front door and snapped the lock into place. I slid down to the floor with my back against the door and tried to catch my breath before heading to my bedroom. My husband was fast asleep, so I decided not to wake him to discuss my terrifying encounter. Sleep did not come easily that night. With the daylight of the next morning came enough bravery to examine my vehicle for traces of her, but there were none. I had dozens of questions and zero answers. Who was she? Why and how was she in my car? Had she been there before, but escaped notice with the chaotic energy of my kids? Was she associated with the antique shop? Or was it coincidence that she appeared as I drove by it? And most puzzling, why could I only see her in my rearview mirror? I've considered going back to the antique village to dig for answers, but most of me wants to leave it as it is and pretend it was nothing more than a nightmare. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. I'm Michael Tatum, and this is Ghoul Intentions. Ooh, a story. Yay! That oh. was from Amy. Thank you, Amy. Oh. That's an amazing story. Uh, as soon as I read it, I was like, yes! That was, okay, so I want our listeners to know that while when the cold opening is being read, the other who's not reading it is still in the room, kind of just enjoying the story for the first time. And it's really hard for me in this case not to vocalize, <laughs> what? Because <laughs> I got to stay no! quiet so it won't pick up on Jamie's yeah. mic. There are plenty of times that and we there's end a up lot. with so other... I just I just like shoot her these looks like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, that was there was a lot of that. I'm like, oh my god, such a great story and well written. Very Amy, well written, go Amy. you. She told us she was going to send it in that she had had it uh, hitchhiker. I believe that we maybe covered it in a uh, 
Yeah, yeah, it, it came up. She, was she alluded to it. Yes, and so uh, now I'm curious when she goes back for a movie, what will happen? I know. Oh, Amy, oh. I'm so sorry. Because I think that's one of the rudest things a, a ghost can do is show up in the back seat. Well, I guess, what a great uh, description of how vulnerable it feels. Yes. Because you, you, you are limited. You can't do shit. You can't close your eyes. You can't go anywhere. You're like, I'm pretty much stuck until I pull over. And in that time, it takes me to pull over if I do want to run out of my car into those dark, scary woods. Yes, like, absolutely. I still have to hope in the couple of moments it's going to take me to do that, that the ghost won't do something really rude, like right. try to kill me. Like wrap their fingers around your neck. God, that was such a great description. Oh, God. Oh God. <sighs> I also just, loved her so description weird. of the antique shop and like mm -hmm. the chaos there. <laughs> the chaos. I'm not gonna lie, it kind of sounds like my sort of place. I know. I was like, Michael probably loves this. I would be like, it's too crazy. Too crazy. I need I organization. Like I would laugh every time someone one of the proprietors popped out from behind one of the some pile of chairs right. or books or Old something and I'd be like, or... oh, yeah. yeah, right. Oh, oh God. God, thank you, Amy. Oh. Oh, such a oh, great story. Such a good story. I do. I kind of want, you know what? Feel free to ignore my advice. In fact, everyone should. But <laughs> I, in my movie, you go back to that shop and you find something in a pile of antiques that you then do some research on and discover like, oh, that ghost is related to you somehow. Maybe that's, maybe you're some, supposed to go back and family, find your talisman. Some family heirloom, some talisman that's waiting for you there, buried in, in you know, in diamond in the rough, as That's it were. right. But maybe don't go by yourself. Take someone with you. I mean. You can go back. During the day, just actually well, yeah, take someone to, take someone with you to go ahead of you into each open. room, so that uh, whoever you know, when someone jumps out, they scare them. And not or you. just every time you walk into the room, be like, "I'm in a new place," <laughs> and scare the owner. What's, what's the <laughs> <laughs> new shop? Wow! And like, fuck the owner. Uh, Is this a different shop completely? <laughs> and then you'll be ready right for an answer. What's the weirdest experience you've ever had in an antique mall or antique shop? Um. I used to go antiquing all the time yeah, when I was a kid, especially because my mom loved it. So I went with her and I loved antique shops. Yeah, I don't know if I've had anything particularly freaky. My favorite is I found a pair of boots that had Tatum written on the back of it. <gasps> and I texted you and I was like... Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I was like, look, what size are you? But they were too small, so I didn't buy them for you. They were my, they were my boots from when I was a kid. Right. They were, I mean, they were adult male boots like cowboy boots i wore that's the size i wore as a kid oh just a adult. massive massive feet right right i've been a size 13 since i was 13. yeah they weren't i think they were like a 10 or something like that okay probably so. from when i was in <laughs> fourth grade yeah. um yeah, <laughs> they were great though i was like look at these cowboy boots it would be perfect if they were big enough for you but they're not that's funny it's but that that's my favorite yeah um but I don't really. I went to do it. I went to it. There was an antique mall I went to once upon a time, and I guess it was just weirded me out because I didn't know it was a thing, and there was like Nazi paraphernalia for sale. Oh no! And I was like, "What the fuck is That's this?" Okay. And it was kind of its own little locked cabinet, so it wasn't just out. It was like a special thing, and I guess like I was like that. What? And I, I kind of, I was with a friend at the time, and she could see that I was really ruffled by that, and I wanted to go and talk to the proprietor and be like, "What? What are you fucking doing selling that? That's creepy and fucking weird. Give it to a museum, but it shouldn't." I, I'm a, I, I, I don't know. I'm of 
the mind that it shouldn't be sold. I'm like, I just don't yeah, want no, it. But then, you know, I guess it's not technically illegal, at least not where it was being sold. And so I was just like, well, I'm never going to go back there again, which whatever, maybe Jesus. I was overreacting, but it was just weird. I was like, I don't yeah. want to see that. Yeah, no, um, that hat, that hat with a swastika on it could have been worn by someone who fucking killed somebody. You know I mean? Ugh. I don't yeah. know. It's weird, but that's my own thing. I'm just like, oh, it makes me think of American beauty and like the, oh, the neighbor yeah. that's like, has the secret Nazi paraphernalia collection. And you're like, Mm-hmm. It's weird. Kind of makes you wonder what sort of people collect that kind of stuff. Is yeah. it worse yeah. to collect Nazi memorabilia or serial killer memorabilia? I mean, six of one, half a dozen of the other. I mean, I they're feel. both kind of fucking awful. But you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, you know, this is Ted Bundy's jacket or some shit. And they're like, I'm going to buy it. I think it's weird. It was, uh, was it the lead singer of Corn who used to be really into that kind of stuff? And then he had a kid and it was like, I should stop. Right. This is this these these things once belonged to someone who killed people like my right. my kid. Well, it makes you and wonder then, though, then was he ever really into it, or was it just shock value? You know? I think he's probably into it. I was I was into creepy shit like that when I was younger because I guess I didn't have the perspective to look back and be like, oh yeah, no, that was there was like a lot of pain and ugliness associated with this. It's not just like oh, it's fun because it's creepy. Is there like, anything creepy like that that you mm. would ever own? Uh, not, not if it's ever belonged to a killer or, or, or Nazis or any kind of organ, like nothing like that. I like haunted objects, like different cursed things are a little different, but it depends on the story. Like if it were like a doll that were cursed because the child was murdered that belonged to, no, I don't want anything to do that. Okay. What if? That seems weird. But if it's just like a creepy thing, like a haunted painting or something, I I might own that. What if it was a full Le Creuset set? But a full what? Le Creuset. What's Le Creuset? The I don't know the what is. I don't know why yeah, you don't. It's it's it's. It sounds like it's something. Stoneware. I it's like cooking and it's cast iron and oh okay like enameled cast iron. I They're amazing. Clearly, I don't spend enough time in my own kitchen. I have a Dutch oven of one that I make all my stew in usually, unless I'm making a whole bunch. But oh, okay. Yeah, they usually come in like the blues and the bright colors or whatever. Yeah, they're very, they're kind of that rustic, that beautiful rustic uh, blue with the French. little white flecks stuff, like that French country. Sometimes like that, yeah. yeah. They're real heavy yeah. because they're cast iron. Okay, I didn't know. Yeah, they have, have, I mean, they have I didn't know all kinds of pans and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think they have announced last week that they're doing like this whole Star Wars series of <laughs> like <laughs> Dutch ovens that... It, it's really funny. Sorry, Dutch ovens the, just make me think of when I know, someone farts. farts in the bed. Um, but <laughs> I've collected those. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then let's say okay, because I'm I thought okay, if somebody and they're very expensive too. So if somebody had a okay, this is a full set of Le Creuset, but it was owned by this murderer. I don't but know. But you can get the whole set for a hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I would oh, buy the shit just, out of I it. I just buy it out of expediency and not, and be like, this is cool that I own this thing that a murderer right, had. Right, like I would buy it at a I discount. I mean, even I'm if... sure at some point we've all been to a store and tried on a pair of clothing That's that, was, that was, hmm? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> we, we tried on a pair of clothing and what we wound up buying and maybe someone else like tried that same thing on or maybe it was returned to that store by a murderer or someone who did something horrible. I mean, I don't know. We're all connected in some way. I don't know. I don't know. I thought you were going to say a uh, thrift store. Tried on something in a thrift store. And That's I was like, also true. No, I don't do that. I no. don't try shit on. It's gross. Yeah, okay, I agree. I and my ex was really into thrift shopping. Yeah, I know Not a lot of people clothes, are really good for at like it. Furniture and stuff. And right. so but our house had a really weird energy because I feel we brought a lot of weird history. Yeah. Um And I'm not opposed of... to it. 
Clothes in particular, though, I find a lot of them are just terrible fabrics to start off with. Yeah, there's um, a reason they're in a thrift shop. Yeah, for a thrift <laughs> shop. And there are other places to buy used clothes that are of a higher quality. But and I'm just not good at it. I'm not good at digging through. I don't know the It's that chaos, me. right? Of mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what I'm looking. Oh, this is too much. Uh, you know. So I guess I guess I'm torn. I like I think history should be preserved, but at the same time, it like it's not for the sake of kitsch, like or kitsch. If someone was like, you know, oh, I'm owning this because a serial killer owned this. It's like that's not. You're kind of celebrating a fucking murderer, and I don't think they right. should be celebrated. Yeah, like we should be remembered and like you know as kind of a cautionary and tale on and podcasts on regularly. Podcast. Yeah. Of course, every chance we get, but. <laughs> but we're not celebrating we're not, them. Yeah. It's just fascinating know? in the way human psyche works. It's fascinating, but it's not yeah. like, you know. We have to keep in touch with the dark happy side. Happy birthday I parties I don't think, for them. Yeah. No. A, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm, there's certain lines I won't cross, but I guess in, in, it's not as, sometimes those lines are very fuzzy, but like Nazi paraphernalia? No, never, no, yeah, ever, no, ever, 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 ever. not okay. My grandfather had some, but that's because he fought in the war and he took it back as like prizes of we beat these people. And that's right. like, okay, that's, well, that's his right then, I guess. And then he donated it to a museum after, right, he left right. it to a museum after he passed away because he's like, that's where it belongs. It shouldn't be in yeah. someone's. He was of like the mind that it didn't belong to anyone who Nazi paraphernalia there. and blackface kind of, just don't, no. Yeah, just, don't, never, just fucking don't do it. It's know. never a funny joke. The, who does it? It's yeah. never appropriate. Who's it for? Who's it for? Like, yeah, I don't. I don't understand. Um, and do we want there to be a society in which who's it for is you know pandered to? No, right. No, exactly. I don't. No. All it's right. Funny because I'm talking about a serial killer today. <laughs> Yay! But we're not collecting their goods. No. Uh, well, uh, his goods would be very expensive if they were collectible because they'd be from the 15th century. Very collectible. Very collectible. But but we wouldn't do it, damn it. <laughs> Interesting. A lot of his stuff wound up being collected while he was still alive because he had to sell a bunch of his shit. Um, Good. He was a very rich man. And, oh, uh, boo. And Well, he was a very rich man, but he was a spendthrift. He didn't know what to do with money. And so he like wound oh. up, there's, well, we'll get to it, but um, he well, wound up having to, to first. he wound up selling a bunch of his stuff. And so the town that he was kind of one of the lords of, like wound up with like all of his like tapestries and artworks and stuff wound up in various places because he had, he had to pawn it all oh. just to fucking pick up and move because shit was happening. But we'll get to it. All right. I guess we should probably give a title first yes. before I get into the story. What is our title? Our title is Open Now the Door. Mm. Um, it sounds pretty vague, but it actually comes from a well-known modern one-act opera by the modern composer Belle Bartok, who I love very much. Bartok. It's um, Bartok. Like an Anastasia. Like an, like, exactly, like Yay. the little bat from Anastasia. Um, he wrote a really beautiful and stunning and kind of frightening opera called Bluebeard's Castle based on an old French legend. Okay. And um, and there's a scene in which the, the main character of Bluebeard says those words and it'll become apparent why I chose them for our title as we tell the story. Have you ever heard the story of Bluebeard, the, the, the folktale? It's, there are various no. versions of it. I remember hearing one when I was a kid called Messy Dolores. But I'll, 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 you might, you might've heard like, a variation. So let me, let me begin. Messy Dolores sounds like a book by Judy Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> Only if Judy Bloom got real dark. She More may like have. VC, Messy Dolores to me would be like a book by V.C. Andrews. Okay. Remember V.C. Andrews? No. Flowers in the Attic? Oh, yes. Yeah. All those, all those I'm so dark, bad with dark names. stories. It's okay. You, you know, come on. Babysitter's Club. Dark, oh, dark books, not not really. Um, I used to read all of the babysitters. <laughs> so <did> no. <laughs> also read like the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, which were already like well worn classics by the time I got my hands on them. But mm-hmm. I loved, I love mysteries. Me too. The darker the better. Now, uh, to that end, I should give a trigger warning to this one because my story is pretty goddamn dark. Yeah, skip to I mean, mine. It's, if, 
if yeah, you were yeah, triggered the by next, the next, this segment's going to be violence, specifically violence towards children and like serial murder. And even though it happened quite a few centuries ago, it's pretty goddamn awful stuff. Okay. Um, all the more awful because somebody, because it was the time it was, the motherfucker got away with it for much longer. Right. So, without further ado, I, by way of, just to lighten things up a little bit before I plunge into this fucking well of shit, um, I was going to do one on Blackbeard the Pirate, mm -hmm. and I, I may save that for a later time, um, but I was, I was looking into Blackbeard, Bluebeard came up, and I was like, oh, that's right, everyone thinks Bluebeard was a pirate, he wasn't. Um, <laughs> the, so the story of Bluebeard which is, uh, it was first recorded by the 17th century writer named Charles Perrault. Or mm. Perrault. There are a lot of French I know that names. Name. Yeah, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of French names in this story that I'm probably going to mangle. I'm fluent in bad French. But I'm so, sure it'll sound glorious. It'll sound like it sounds. Um, <laughs> now, he's credited with more or less inventing the fairy tale genre as we know it today. He was the mm. first one to really, even well in advance of the Brothers Grimm. Pre-Grimm. Pre-Grimm, pre-Charles Christian Anderson. And oh. Anderson. There I go with my Sean Connery's. <laughs> it's the mules. It's the mules. Um, I need another sip of this before I begin. But he um, he popularized the story by writing a, a you know a proper you know fictionalized account of it, and he he drew it from folklore. At least originally that was thought. And it's it tells um, Bluebeard tells the story of a hapless young bride undone by curiosity at the hands of her murderous husband. <laughs> so you've probably heard some variation of it around the campfire or at a slumber party. I I know I did. Quick sip. Oh God. So loud. <laughs> Only to be undone by his significant swallowing sounds. <clears throat> I'm working on it. Um, so the story goes, uh, the breakdown is like this. So this young peasant girl is married off by her family to this rich, much older nobleman. Nobleman whisks her way to live in a castle or a mansion or something like that. It's it's clearly someplace she's never known luxury like this in her life. So, wow. He brings her there and is like... Mikasa, Sukasa, you can do whatever you want with this place. It's what's mine is yours. Just, you know, whatever. Deck it out in sunflower print, paint the fucking bathroom hot pink. I don't give a shit. Just have fun. Right. But not that room. That room there. Beauty and the that's Beast. My man don't cave. go to that wing. Don't go in don't go in that room. Yeah. And uh, cause it's just bad. Bad news, don't do it. That's right. off limits. No girls allowed. Cool. Welcome home, <laughs> sweetie. Glad we had this talk. You're gonna do great. And <laughs> she, of course, is like, but what? How bad can it be? But what about and, that room, though? Yeah. What about that room? And she, she spends the rest. She, she, she dresses up the rest of the castle. She brings in all this light and really livens things up. But she's always like that room, that one room. I just what? What the fuck about that mm -hmm. room? What if so, there's a rose in there that's being kept I'm alive sure in a glass? She was like, close. He's testing me. Um, and I'm, you know, like any any partner, she's thinking, okay, whatever. Everyone thinks their secrets deep and dark. It's probably just a fucking weird porn stash and, and you know, like a Reservoir Dogs poster. <laughs> In my mind, porn stash was just a really bad mustache that he used to have, but he kept it. <laughs> oh, great. So he, in this like, version, like, there's up. like a whole cabinet full, full of different of... porn stashes. Like, here's yes. my 70s. Here's my John Holmes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all just different. Oh, here's the Bluebeard. Um... <laughs> <laughs> So she walks in there, and it's a big fucking mistake. She finds the uh, the the murdered remains of all his former wives. Not and mustaches. Yeah, not mustaches at all. And they they are may have in, been beards, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, wink, wink. discarded beards. Um, gross. Ouch. And <laughs> <laughs> this is 
not very respectful. <laughs> well, it's all just a story. This is all just the, right. this oh, is the, okay. this this is the, the quote-unquote fairy tale. So she finds this, and, uh, you know, Hubby, you know, finds her and is like, bitch, I told you. And so he kills her, and she joins the collection. Okay. The end. Classic fairy tale. Classic fairy tale. Now, traditionally read as a cautionary tale vis-a-vis -vis a woman's place and right. the, you know, the expediency of obeying one's husband. Fuck mm. a bunch of that. Bluebeard is seen by modern scholars as a subtle indictment of the violent patrician culture to which the quote-unquote fairer sex has been yoked for centuries. Food yep. for thought, any way you slice it, pardon the pun. <clears throat> mm. But for all its, I should <laughs> say pardon the bon mot, because it's French. Oh, God. But for all... <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> but um, for all its macabre gothic trappings, the tale isn't entirely symbolic. Some research done uh, toward the end, I believe, of the 19th century found that a someone that was all too real mm. was the inspiration for the story. This is not a surprise. Uh, a member of the landed gentry whose crimes were so shocking, so unspeakable, that believe it or not, serial matricide paled by comparison. Uh-oh. One thing... People cared about it? <laughs> oh, well, no. Not oh, until it was no. way too late. Um, for one thing, this guy's victims weren't women, let alone bartered brides, nor did he slaughter them simply to quench an insatiable bloodlust, though sadistic appetite certainly did play a role. Nope. 15th century French knight-errant and celebrity nobleman Gilles de Ray, who I'll probably refer to as just Ray, um, okay. murdered children scores of them in the privacy of his vast estate attempting to raise a demon. What? Right? You may want to have a drink real quick. Yeah. Attempting to raise a demon. Mm-hmm. By sacrificing children. By sacrificing a lot of fucking children. And in awful, awful ways. Not just like, here, we're going to like put you to sleep in there and we're going to... No, it was, it was fucking awful. It was awful. Oh, jeez. Now, though he was remembered now as a you know, medieval serial killer that kind of helped, you know, I shouldn't say helped, but for whom, like, it kind of, he was one of the first serial killers that historians are aware of that, that okay. operated as, as, you know, long as he did. Before the depth of his depravity came to light in 1440, De Ray, or just Ray, had been the toast of France, not to mention one of the richest men in Europe. As the heir of House uh, Montgomery Laval, uh, Ray, born sometime in 1405, grew up in the family castle at uh, Champont-sur-Lure. His parents Sounds died. Sounds great to me. Right, and it's like, I'm, I'm probably... I mean, you know he's rich if they know what year he was born. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, especially in those days. Yeah, that's His parents died when he was only an infant, which left him to come of age under the shrewd eye of his maternal grandfather, a guy named Jean de Cron. Uh, an exceptionally intelligent child, Gilles soaked up the best education money could buy in those days, steeping himself in moral philosophy, ironically, Latin, <laughs> even illuminating the odd manuscript now and then just to round things out. He also took a shine to military discipline. Wow. Gilles, uh, like all young men of his day, lived in the shadow of the Hundred Years' War, a series of bloody conflicts between England and France that raged between 1337 and 1453. It's actually the 116-year war. Um, the scions of all wealthy families were given mandatory training in combat as a matter of course, because odds were that they'd end up as a pawn in some grisly skirmish at some point in their life. So it was better, better to be prepared. Death on the battlefield was simply part of life in those days, if you mm -hmm. were of a certain class. Mm -hmm. Now, Grandpa Cron was a consummate schemer. 
ever plotting to pack the family coffers, the old man drew up a marriage contract between his then 12-year-old grandson and four-year-old Jean Panal, the wealthiest heiress in Normandy. When the deal fell through, Kron swelled his, grand his grandson's fortune a hundredfold by pairing him off to another wealthy heiress, Catherine de Troz, who bore Gilles a child in 1429, a girl named Marie who we know very little about. This marriage was made possible because Catherine's father, I guess it would be pronounced Catherine's father, the Duke of Brittany owed Gilles his life. See, at 16, Ray had distinguished himself in the royal army by facilitating the Duke's release from captivity. A rebel faction was holding Duke John IV of House Montfort hostage. That was the Duke of Brittany. Following the Breton War of Succession, he'd secured a great deal of power over his rival, a guy named Count Olivier de Blois. Uh, de Blois, de Blois, de Blois. <laughs> French names. Um... Unhappy with this turn of events, Olivier's sympathizers captured and imprisoned the Duke, refusing to let him go unless he surrendered his holdings. Enter Gilles de Rez. The rebel faction was summarily cut down and the Duke saved. The young military hero was rewarded handsomely, as you might imagine. At 16. At 16. Jeez. In addition to the lucrative marriage, the king himself rewarded Gilles with land grants, essentially allowing de Rez to acquire huge tracts of land for nothing. Um, couple that with Catherine's peerless fortune, which was, of course, managed by the men in her life because, you know, women. Right, what's she um, going to do? Think for yeah. herself? No. <laughs> what's she going to do? Buy another bustle? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so Gilles was fucking dripping with money. Mm -hmm. um, given a formal introduction to the court of Charles VII in 1425, Gilles breathed the rarefied atmosphere of courtly manners for the first time and found he rather enjoyed the spectacle and intrigue of it all. To maintain his standing among the gentry, he cemented his reputation for military prowess by capturing Captain Blackburn of the English Navy, for which feat of daring do he was made commander in the Royal Army from 1427 to 1435. Now, when mm. geopolitical tensions rekindled the Hundred Years' War in 1429, because mind you, this was a conflict that went on and off, on and off, mm -hmm. on and off. I mean, so many generations fought in it. Um, uh, Ray found himself alongside Joan of Arc against wow. the English in their, uh, and their Burgundian allies, famously taking part in the Siege of Orleans and thereafter being granted the right to add the royal arms to his family crest. Now, Joan of Arc, for those of you that don't know, was a very bold girl, all of 17, who petitioned King Charles for an army with which she could take back her hometown of Orleans from the English. How a teenage peasant girl secured an audience with his royal highness, let alone persuaded him to put her in command of an army, mm. remains one of the great mysteries of European history. Joan claimed to have visions of the Archangel Michael and is said to have demonstrated for the court uh, a miraculous ability to heal her own wounds. This was apparently enough to persuade the king, who was said to be terrified of her. Gilles mm. de Ray proudly joined Joan's cause, and in just nine days, the pair of them won Orleans back from the English to the glory of God, which not only was a great military victory, but it reinvigorated France's Catholic faith in the process. Both Gilles and Joan were elevated in the popular imagination as envoys of heaven. Until. Alas, Joan was <laughs> later captured by Burgundy and burned as a heretic by English forces in 1431. Uh, on July 20, excuse me, July 17th, 1429, de Ray was made a Marshal of France and given the unalloyed honor. Isn't that the fucking way? Right. Of transferring the Holy Ampula from the Abbey of Saint-Rémy to Notre-Dame-de-Rims for the consecration of Charles VII. The Holy Ampula was a sacred glass vial uh, that was traditionally used in, it was first used by Pope Innocent II to anoint Louis VII in 
1131. So it was a it was a relic of a huge standing, and there was a whole legend surrounding it. It was kind of their, not quite the Holy Grail, but sort of the the royal equivalent equivalent, the French royal equivalent okay. of the Holy Grail. So getting being the knight that got to carry that from uh, from one chapel to the the coronation was a big fucking deal. Right, right. And he was set. Uh, now, for all the accolades, however, Gilles proved to be a reckless spendthrift uh, through whom money passed like grease through a goddamn goose in a gesture of mortal displeasure at his grandson's prodigal lifestyle. Upon his death in 1432, old man Cron left his sword and breastplate to Ray's little brother, René, which oh. is a big fucking deal, too. Now, not long after this, Ray withdrew from public life to focus on his passion for theater. He took up the quill and hashed out a play positively monumental in scope, an absurdly ambitious piece comprising some 20,000 lines of dramatic verse depicting the Battle of Orleans. Oh, my God. Keeping with his... That uh, sounds awful. <laughs> well, you're right. Now, keeping <laughs> with his habit for excess, Ray staged this colossal spectacle himself. He paid scores of actors and musicians out of pocket, uh, and there was 140 speaking roles and over 500 fucking extras in the battle scenes. Wow. On stage, too. On stage. The cast wore over 600 elaborate costumes each night. Each costume was discarded and then made fresh for the next performance the following night. So he had weavers and seamstresses working around the clock to keep the wardrobe wow. fresh. Why? No one fucking knows. He's just like, why not? Because I can. Because I can, yeah. Uh, I mean, on the bright side, he wasn't offering them exposure. That's <laughs> true. Now, if this weren't enough, Gilles kept his audience steeled for the massive undertaking of actually sitting through the goddamn play by offering unlimited food and drink at his own expense. Wow. So he was on the verge of bankruptcy. Now it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll... Before a uh, awful Now it's like, oh, feed, for... oh, fucking food and yes, drink. What, goose and hog and all? Okay. So he was on the verge of bankruptcy before this obsession took hold. By 1432, he'd already sold a huge share of his lands to remain solvent. So incensed was his family as Gilles' exorbitant hobby, they petitioned Pope Eugene IV to disavow Gilles' preferred venue, the Holy Chapel of the Innocents, where the play was performed. Right. Gilles built and maintained the chapel himself. Uh, a not unheard of quirk for the nobility of the time. It was rather odd, however, even blasphemous, that Gilles insisted on officiating mass there himself. That was a big deal. That was his way of yeah, saying, yeah, had... I'm powerful. You can't do shit about it. Yeah, like, you know, come at me with that, spl- come at, you know, miss me with that blasphemous shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, like in Italy, that's why you have so many churches, you know, in every corner or circle, as the case may be. There's four, and it's because a family would have a church that the family would own and keep up with, and then mm-hmm. they would have mass there. They wouldn't be delivering the mass there. Yeah, but Gilles was. He was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, guys. You know, stop me. Wow. Well, and so that was the thing. And that was so, because he was so rich, he, even though he was kind of insolvent at this point, like he was still considered, he was so popular among the people yeah. because they loved him. Like, he, I mean, he, he, g- he gave them all, he gave them jobs <laughs> and then he got you drunk. To but watch they also felt play. that he was, he was a messenger of God, you know, because oh, he had right. won the battle against the English with Joan of Arc. Who, who, then they got rid know. of that nasty woman and now it's all him. Right, right. Ugh. Now, so the Holy Chapel of the Innocents, um, the name itself was rather um, kind of a sinister bit of foreshadowing because it was it was cribbed from the verse in the book of Matthew in which King Herod, uh, who's been told a child will one day grow up to overthrow him, orders the mass execution of every child in his kingdom under the age of two. Mm-hmm. Now, at this particular time, that Bible story had come to be seen as kind of an indictment of the constant warfare raging between England and France. So it seems like he named it not in kind of a tongue-in-cheek, uh, you know, uh, 
reference to his other hobby, which was mm. murdering children, as right. we'll see, but in kind of solidarity to the cause of pacifism that was growing across France at the time. Right. When he had stepped um, out of that. Yes. That yes. army life for theater. So that makes sense. Now, Pope Eugene was not impressed with the family's suit and declined to disavow the chapel, but the king wasn't so dismissive. On July 2nd, 1435, a royal edict was handed down expressly forbidding Ray from selling any more land. No subject of Charles VII was permitted to enter into a contract with him, ruining his credit and forcing him to pawn the spoils of his military expeditions. When in August of that year, Ray set out for Brittany, where the royal edict was unenforceable, Orléans was littered with objects d'art he'd been forced to part with to keep his head above water. So this whole town was like, hey, yeah, we got this little outfit that used to be his. <laughs> we got this little painting here, a little sculpture that here, like they're just everywhere. Like, you know, because yeah. he had to sell it. Now, learning that one of his favorite castles was being guarded under royal decree by a cleric named uh, Jean de Ferron, Ray fumed. He was being denied the right to do with his own property what he wished, no doubt because King Charles was threatened by Ray's popularity. He and his father-in-law, the Duke of Brittany, wouldn't rest until de Ray was both penniless and homeless. So Ray marched to the castle in question, beat Le Ferron, a cleric, within an inch of his fucking life, and commandeered the keys. This brazen display of power was more than enough for the nobility to decide it was time to put the kibosh on de Ray once <laughs> they were like, for all. Eh. They were like, okay, he's one man giving mass is one thing but he just nearly killed he nearly killed a fucking priest who was sent there by the king to keep yeah. the ray from fucking setting Seems up trouble in his castle just a little excessive now around this time dark rumors came down the pike that gilles had taken up alchemy more than likely his family and rivals ignited these rumors to help take him down at any rate alchemy was a deeply misunderstood practice at the time tantamount in most folks minds to necromancy unlike now where it's completely understood <laughs> well it was mostly chemistry you know mm -hmm. it was it was this attempt for you know despite what people like jung would later say it was an attempt by people to be like let's see if we can transmute these metals into gold and it was basically a, a try to make money yeah it wasn't like trying to raise the dead or talk to the devil though it was a, it was kind of just conflated in the minds of you know popular folk that alchemy was just wrong and it was it was it was dark magic so the fact that he was interested in it kind of made people already go oh, okay is he worshiping the devil <laughs> uh and indeed it was said that Gilles had sold the soul to the devil now sometime around 1438 after settling in the township of Machacul, Gilles partnered with a scholar named Francois Prelati sometimes he's written and remembered as uh Blanchette but I'm not sure why he has two different names. One might have been a pseudonym, but he's, it depends on which history you read. But there's always a guy that was a scholar, was kind of a, you know, necromancer slash alchemist who was known for his knowledge and who really lived, but who went by multiple names. Well, didn't they all back then? It's like, choose one of your 47 names. Yeah. And then well, go somewhere like, else and choose a different one of your 47 right, names. Right, 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 right. So, hey, what town would you like to be from? Okay, well, then you're going to be Ray. Yeah. Um, so she partnered with uh, with this guy, and whether the partnership represented more than a mutual interest in the occult, we don't know, though whispers were already stirring that the men were romantically involved. Well, that's exciting. Right? Sexy. In my movie, they were. Um, <laughs> it was said they attempted to raise a demon called Baron, who could, among other things, produce gold from thin air. Attempting to the summoning ritual three times without success, uh, Prilati theorized that Baron was mad and required more than just some occult symbols drawn on a stone floor. The demon, he said, needed a human sacrifice. Right. 
No, I makes, mean, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he was. As far as demons money. go, I would assume that's what they would demand. He's like, look, I can make gold, but I can do it for free. Um, and here we have the classic Bluebeard MO. Gilles lured young children to his castle with promises of luxury and slaughtered them to use their mutilated corpses to curry favor with Baron the demon. Wow. Now, poor families at the time, especially, jumped at the chance to have their sons work as a page or a kitchen boy for such a well-heeled celebrity and gave not a second thought to relinquishing these children to what they had every reason to think would be a better life for them. When their child completely disappeared outright, though, there's not really much they could fucking do. Right. Um, well, it's like, uh, what's her name? Bathory? The Countess Bathory. Ca yeah, 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 same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Gilles kind of considered the male Bathory because, you right. know, he That's was... That's why we don't he, know he about was... him. <laughs> well, she came later. She was in the 1600s. But still, we and everybody so she... knows about her. Yeah. Well, she also killed a lot more, apparently. Okay. Like, she killed up to 600. I want to do a thing on her. Women do it should. better. They just do. <laughs> um... <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. There's a fair warning, guys. It's about to get really, really dark. Um, right. But I'm not going to give all the details that I found because some of them are just like, mm, I'll just let you imagine that. Hold on. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, That's the appropriate response. <laughs> <laughs> now, so according to, and all this came out in a trial. So so after the beating of the Jean Le Ferron, the, the cleric, they started, a bishop started looking into to Gilles and his activities. And that's when a lot of people came forward and said like, yeah, our son went missing and he went to work for him or he mm. was hired as a messenger boy and we never saw him again, whatever. And so these rumors and they started, so they finally, uh, a lot of the detail I'm about to give you actually came from a confession that Ray himself gave, but not under torture. He they just said, he just, yeah, yeah. he just told them. What's uh, like right, to before that torture Google had to story, be implemented. Um, the Google one with the, where all the rich men would get together and have the sex parties mm -hmm. and it would be, they would have to, get some girl from their their whatever it happened all the time yeah. it still fucking happens because rich assholes are like well because i can because i can so um ray would routinely decapitate several children at once display their heads on spikes uh, around the dining hall and ask his guests whom they thought the most beautiful. The first recorded case of a missing child in the area involved a 12-year-old apprentice boy named Judon. That's his surname, alas, his Christian name hasn't survived. Um, but he was apprenticed to a farrier named Gilom Hilliard. Uh, and um, Judon was conscripted as a messenger by Ray's cousins who paid him to deliver a document to Gilles in Machacoul. When Jodon failed to return home, the nobleman denied any knowledge of the boy's fate and suggested perhaps highwaymen had snatched him on the road. During his later trial, Gilles confessed to having killed the boy at his satanic altar alongside dozens of others. Wow. Now, in his 1971 biography of Ray, uh, author Jean Benedetti offers a grisly description of the fate these hapless victims met in Gilles' depraved inner sanctum. Quote, the boy was pampered and dressed in better clothes than he'd ever known. The evening began with a large meal and heavy drinking, particularly uh, hippocras, which uh, was an herb that acted as a stimulant. The boy was then taken to an upper room, which only Gilles and his immediate circle were admitted. There he was confronted with the true nature of his situation. The shock thus produced on the boy was an initial source of pleasure for Gilles. Now, uh, Ray's valet and accomplice, a guy named Etienne Collion, known uh, known just kind of offhand as Poutot, testified at trial that his master delighted in stripping his victims naked, hanging them from ropes in such a way as to stifle their screams, and torturing them while he masturbated. The Ugh. fucking creep. 
having spent himself. Ray would order the child killed or do it himself, often chopping off their head. Sometimes in a show of uncharacteristic mercy, he'd simply break their necks with a like a wooden stick that he kept around. Uh, Gilles also kept a short, thick, double-edged sword called a bacmald on hand to deal the fatal blow. Bouteau went on to say his master had no scruple about desecrating the body sexually post-mortem, often, quote, disdaining the sexual organs and instead using their wounds in unspeakable uh, fucking ways. Gross. Um, oh my God, Michael. Sorry, I know, it's disgusting. And like, ugh, God, and in his own confession, Gilles testified that uh, when said children were dead, he would kiss them and those that he had the most, that those that had the most handsome limbs and heads he held up to admire them and had their bodies cruelly cut open and took delight at the sight of their inner organs. And very often when the children were dying, he sat on their stomachs and took pleasure in seeing them die and laughed. Now Poutot and another servant named Anrit would torch the bodies in the fireplace of Ray's bedchamber, being careful to add their clothes uh, piecemeal to help mitigate the foul odor of burning flesh because of course bodies take a long time to burn. Yeah. So they would take the children's clothes and just kind of put it in there on, you know, whenever the smell got too much, just to kind of mask the smell. And then they would take the ashes and just throw them in the cesspit. Uh, now this, Thanks. so um, all this came out after Duray beat and held hostage the cleric Le Ferron, who you'll recall had been posted at one of Ray's castles to prevent Gilles from going inside. This prompted the Bishop of Nantes to investigate, during which the extent of Ray's crimes came to light. On July 29th, 1440, the bishop released his findings, persuading Ray's father-in-law, the Duke of Brittany, to allow for prosecution. Ray and his servants were arrested on the 15th of September on charges of hearsay, sodomy, or excuse me, heresy, sodomy, and murder. Both secular and ecclesiastical arms of the law conducted the trial. Ex well, now, what triggered it? What made some people say something's not right? He beat that fucking cleric. Oh, and, and then, then they so were like, they, we need they to. They opened a formal inquest into that going, we, he's got out of control. And that's when a lot of peasants felt emboldened to come forward and be like, you don't fucking know the half of it. Right. He's been stealing our children and we think he's been killing them. And then, so they then, you know, the bishop uh, did some research and then went to his uncle, the Duke of Brittany, who was the one that could say yay or nay to prosecuting him. And he said, yeah, I fucking do something. And so they went into Gilles and they arrested him and his, and his servants and they all confessed. And his servants weren't tortured. Uh, by the court, they just, I mean, they were prepared to torture them, as was the custom, but the servants were like, thank you, th thank you for getting us out of this awful situation, mm -hmm. because we've been doing this for years for him, and they told the story, when they came to Gilles, he just kind of smiled and was like, yeah, it's uh. true. So they didn't even have to torture him. He admitted all this because some scholars have come back and it was, you know, for a time and they were thinking, oh, it's like the Knights Templar. He was he was fucking framed because they wanted his money. He had no fucking money by then. He had right. only his name. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it makes no sense. And they didn't have to go that far to prosecute him because the, he'd beaten a fucking cleric. That's already punishable. They didn't right. have to go to such lengths to do this. This all came out because they investigated this one completely, seemingly unrelated incident where he beat this priest mm -hmm. who was just told him, look, you can't go in your castle. You, you can't go in your fifth castle. Right. And, uh, you know, and then they, they investigated and all these peasants came forward and were like, okay, you can help us, this guy. We Because the peasants had nothing. They couldn't do anything about this guy until right. higher powers came down and took an interest. And when they finally did, this shit came out and it's like, fuck, what a creep. And he'd been doing it for years. Like he he admitted to starting it well before he moved to Malchacoul, which is where he went after he was insolvent in mm -hmm. Bonyans. 
And he said, yeah, I started kind of doing it here and there, but it became more about the satanic rites and like trying to raise the demon. But was he trying to raise a demon or did he just, did he just like, was he a fucking. Is that old was school? He just, the devil made me do it. It was well. And, or was it just his, he was being a provocateur. Like, I don't think right. he believed any of that shit. He just thought, well, this will be fun. And won't this make me the boogeyman? Well, I think he delighted in being a boogeyman. And if he's a sociopath, it's mm -hmm. what's most exciting right now. Exactly. It He's doesn't like, oh, matter what happens. Oh, later. wait, I've been killing children anyway. You mean I can get a little money for it? Fuck. Okay, cool. I mean, that's, yeah. that sounds or, like what happens. Or like I'm now in the spotlight. Let me make it matter. Let me make it count. Exactly. Know? So extensive eyewitness testimony by dozens of victims' families and accomplices established his guilt in the judge's mind. Uh, Reyes himself confessed to his crimes on October 21st before torture could be employed to coerce him. So they didn't even get that far. Wow. So it was not a confession that was getting out of gotten a out coerce. of him by torture. Coerced confession. Yeah. Now peasants of neighboring villages had earlier begun to make accusations that their children had entered Reyes' castle begging for food and had never been seen again. The transcript of the trial, which included testimony by the parents of many of those children, as well as a graphic description, uh, graphic descriptions of the murders provided by Reyes' accomplices. Uh, accomplices was said to be so lurid that the judges ordered the worst parts completely stricken for the record. So we wow. still don't know how bad it how was. Bad it was. Yeah. Uh, the number of raised victims was not known as most of the bodies were burned or buried. The number of murders is generally placed between 80 and 200. A few have conjectured, uh, conjectured that there may be more than 600, but that seems to be like, that's just people that want him to be as cool as Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah. <laughs> They're right. like, no. But right. the victims ranged in age from about 6 to 18 and were predominantly boys. Now, on the 23rd of October of 1440, the secular court heard the confessions of Puto and Andrit and condemned them both to death, followed by Reyes' death sentence on the 25th of October. Reyes was allowed to make so, confession. Like, 20 days from yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. It's your turn. I don't mean to do it. I don't mean to make it so relevant. Okay. Uh, Reyes was followed to make was allowed to make confession, rather, and his request to be buried in the church of the monastery of Notre Dame de Carmes in Nantes was granted, weirdly. Um, execution by hanging and burning was set for Wednesday, the 26th of October at nine o'clock. Reyes and his two accomplice, accomplices uh, pr uh, processed to the place of execution at the Ile de Bizet. Uh, Reyes is said to have addressed the crowd with a contrite piety and exhorted Henri and Poutot to die bravely and think only of salvation. His request to be the first to die had been granted the day before at 11 o'clock. The brush at the platform was set fire and Ray was hanged. His body was cut down before being consumed by the flames and claimed by, quote, four ladies of high rank for burial. Anritz and Poutot were executed in similar fashion, but their bodies were reduced to ashes in the flames and scattered. And so ends the awful, awful, oh awful God. fucking story of Gilles de Ray. Um, it's just a fucking rich asshole who was super popular among, you know, the poor because he was rich enough to just cast off a few crumbs to them and, you know, give them a show and give them drink, whatever, and then steal their fucking children yeah. and do unspeakable oh fucking God. things to them. And he got away with it forever. <sighs> and, you know, and it didn't help that everyone, well, look, well, he's a religious man. He couldn't possibly, you know, do those things because he had fought. He'd fought the English. That, right. And that was proof to the peasants of France that God, that he was, uh, you know, with God because he had, he'd been their salvation. Right. You know, he was a living saint, just like Joan had been. Yeah. Um, but Joan got captured. He never did. Yeah. You know, Joan right. was captured and, and, um, you know, put to death very young and, and like you said, right, was made Marshal of France. Yeah. Right. The fucking uh. bloody rich. The oh, bloody man. fucking rich. So yeah, so that so the story of Bluebeard, of you know, the, is based on a true story. That's much much worse than Ooh. than the story we've we've been told. Well, because that wouldn't 
that yeah yeah so yeah dark very dark dark. just don't trust rich people you guys it's really what it comes down to (laughs) if they seem overly religious mm, religious Um, rich people i'm just saying i'm just saying not always not always always. maybe give her a second look but sometimes if sometimes maybe if they if they're you know if they claim to be religious but then they're they're partying and they're you know, spending lots of money and they're they're just sleeping around and doing things. Well, really aren't okay. Well, maybe they're just psychopaths. If it's too good just... to be true, and it, it, you want to get so that's my story. I need another drink after that. So. Yeah, I do too. Let's... Thank you for those of us that are still with us. Thank you for bearing through that. But yeah. I just think it's an important story to be told. That's right. Now drinks. Hell yes. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we're back. We're back. We're freshly mule. Freshly mule. Cheers. Clunk. <laughs> love that sound such a satisfying sound oh this is not my favorite ginger beer i only had like the it's, little, it's for being for being sugar-free it's very it's very sweet it is very sweet it's very sweet i should have put more vodka in there to maybe oh I could next do that. time we next know time. um it bites back a little bit some of the it's a the zavia which normally oh, yeah. i love all of their their normal carbonated beverages it doesn't work, it doesn't work it doesn't the best work. with alcohol yeah in my experience it's too sweet it's too sweet and yeah it's and it's a weird kind of sweetness it's a it's almost a medicinal kind of yes sweetness. i yes. don't know how to describe it yeah but not in a good dimatap way um <laughs> oh dimatap best of all of the cold oh, medicines whatever i'll just pour some dimatap next time great a few drops of grape in there yes don't do drugs kids don't unless you drugs. have a cold and then you need to then do know. them all because you can't <laughs> Breathe. You almost said do them all. No, don't do them don't all. Don't do them all. Just, Just like do the, you the know, good ones. Uh, uh, so next. let's see. I guess, first of all, I needed to do an update. Yes. Yes, you um, do. I know that a few weeks ago, last month, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> it's all a blur. I know. It's, it's a blur now. Um, I did talk about the court case I was involved in uh-huh. and that everything against me had been dismissed uh-huh. and we were waiting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... As of Friday, yep, last week, the fourth, everything against everyone was dismissed. Woot woot! So hell yes, we are all in the clear. Congratulations! Um, yes, thank you oh, so much. It's just it was a... nice to have everything against me dismissed. Don't get me wrong, I was well, very excited kind of, about you know, that. Chomping but... at the bit to make sure our other friends were going to be yes, okay. Yes, exactly. You know, uh, so it's nice to now we're all. We're all free. Yeah, uh, we can all celebrate now. That's right. That's right. So, yay for dismissal. Hell yes. We're very excited. Justice does work sometimes. That's right. Just in time for our birthdays. Monica's was Saturday. Yeah. And mine is on Tuesday. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was great. It's just great, great. Just a great early birthday, birthday present. present. I'll accept it. Perfect. Yes. So <laughs> Thank you, legal system. Thank you. You came through. Uh, and of course, thank you to everyone that's been supportive. All, yes, all the support. Jamie and Monica, been, everyone has been super appreciative. Yes. Yeah. Because especially it seems that a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but some people have gone into their hidey holes. And I appreciate that. Um, hopefully everything will die down soon. Yeah, we will I see. Will. Um, but it is really nice to have had have so much support right now. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, thank you to all the lawyers who have been amazing. Who were fucking um, just Sam, sharp. my lawyer, is incredible. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. He's the best. So, um, yeah. So thank you, everybody. And that is the update. So everything cheers, is to that. cheers. cheers to that. Clunk. Clunk. Yay. It's too sweet.
Um, <laughs> Is, isn't it, though? It's just too sweet. Uh, yes. <laughs> so anyway, yay for that. Yay. I wanted to say that before I got started. Uh, and now my ghost stories. Ghost Which stories, I teased yes, it, yes. I think, last time a little bit because I had just gone to Charleston. Yeah. And, um, and you had it was some... about that. And so I've, I'm going to be doing Charleston in, two, in a series of two Good. Episodes. Good, good, good. I so, love it when you do a series. Yeah. The, fir- the second one uh, will be next week. This one, though, I did. there's three different stories in here. And we went through them. I went on two ghost tours while I was in Charleston. So cool. I was there for two nights. And both nights, we went to dinner and went um, on a ghost tour. And they were both really great. That's one of them ended up in a grave at night. <laughs> a graveyard at night and I went in there so proud of you it was a little so creepy we all kept looking behind us because we could hear like because it was like you know rocks oh, you could so hear you someone like... walking on the rocks and we were all like shit what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> who knows if that was real or not or we were just creeped out because we were in a cemetery but we had two different tours and the first night was good he seemed a little distracted there were there are a lot of ghost tours there and if you look for history it almost all is ghost tours so I it's mean... like all right a lot of ghosts there, I imagine. A lot of ghosts. There are a lot of ghosts. There's a lot of great stories. So many ghost tours. So we did one Friday night and one Saturday night. The Saturday night one, he seemed a little more with it. But I wanted to research some of the stuff that he said, and I'm glad I did. Because uh-huh. I found out a lot of it was pretty exaggerated. Oh, dear. And that kind of fucking drives me crazy. Like, the stories well... are good enough on their own. Why do we have to add shit to it? Ah, you know, so, it's hard. Some some people are just natural exaggerators when they tell a story. I, I'm guilty of that sometimes. Right. I try to keep it in check by staying yeah. with the facts. But some, you know, when I'm telling a good story, I just I I'm get not talking about it. simple elaborate. But you're like, but like straight and up some, lies. Oh, about okay. shit. And well, and you know, I guess you know when you're in a when you're in a town. Not I'm not trying to justify it, but when you're in a town that's known for when when there's so many rival tour groups, I guess. Yeah, you're gonna make you know, yours the most you gotta, salacious. Yeah, so. Yes. Uh, but good for you for well that let yeah. that be a lesson to everyone that goes on these tours. Always Look double it. check, double to check, make sure. research it. That's right. Um, so this one, uh, let's see. I've looked at uh, scares and haunts of Charleston and Charleston on stage, um, and of course the Wikipedia. Fun. But the first place we went was. The, the dinner we went to on Friday night was uh-huh. recommended by um, a listener on Twitter. Um, yes. Said to go to Pugin's Porch. I don't want to call them out in case they don't want to. But call yourself out on Twitter if you want to. Uh, so Pugin's Porch is reportedly very haunted. And it's kind of down-home southern kind of food. and yeah. um, Southern comfort food. It's Yeah. Mm. It's super cool. It's this old house. Oh, and yes. it was the house was built in 1888. It's called Pugin's Porch. After a dog, so I love it, and, and I'll yeah, I'll get there. So it's charming. It has this front porch that's really pretty. The food is incredible. I think I had like it was a pork and a um oh, a, a ravioli with goat cheese or something like that. I'm so hungry, and, and I don't uh, know why because you just made us brunch a little while ago, and it was very filling and very delicious. Yeah, now I'm hungry again. So good. It was all so good. Um, I think the. The hardest part was it was a little warm. We were on the second floor because it's like an old house. Right. So right. the dining room is a certain, you know, and, and upstairs has just kind of been opened. But, you know, it's still the upstairs of an old house. It was a little warm and we just opened the door. It was really fun. Uh, <laughs> Michelle and I 
<laughs> we're like, just open the door. Just do it. We're both kind of the mother, let also bossy person of the group. <laughs> and so everybody was like, what if we get in trouble? We're like, don't fucking worry about it. Just open the goddamn door. What are they going to do? Kick us out? We're paying yeah. customers. Yeah. We open the door. They'll nobody... just close the door. Yeah. Nobody said anything. It was great. So um, it was really fun, though. Uh, <laughs> and This is how you get in, into ghostly adventures, though. Because right. you were like, just open the door. Just, just do, it. do it. Just do it. Let's just, just do, do it. it. This is why I get into all sorts of adventures that I probably shouldn't get into. <laughs> uh, but so uh, it was great, though. Dinner was great. Nothing creepy happened, really. But <laughs> really? Not really. But the yeah. drinks were fucking amazing. Oh, oh so there were spirits. Mule. There were spirits. We did have spirits. Um, so, Okay. The Pugin is the dog, a scruffy neighborhood mutt who began parking himself on the porch when Bobby Ball bought the house in the 70s and turned it into the restaurant that stands there today. He was a friendly little dog, so Ball adopted him. When Pugin's porch restaurant opened, Pugin acted as the host. So there are several different stories about how Pugin came to live at Pugin's porch. One is that he was a neighborhood mutt like this one where he came and and just liked it. And while they were going over construction after they bought it, you know, uh, reconstructing the place to do a restaurant because she always wanted to do a restaurant. Bobby Uh Bell did. He would just come and sit on the porch like that. Another story is that the family who left there just left him. And so he stayed and they adopted him. Uh-huh. My favorite story is that the family who sold the house it, uh, moved down the street a little bit. And uh-huh. so he would leave every morning and come to the porch <laughs> and then stay on the porch during the day. And then he'd go back at night. That's my favorite because it's like story. the best of both worlds. Yes. And on the sidewalk, not too far away, uh-huh. are little paw prints on the sidewalk. <laughs> so those are reportedly his paw prints. Oh. Now they would have to be his paw prints from the 70s. But I still want to believe. Well, it's a, lot true. Side, a lot of sidewalks, a lot of sidewalks are, are still, are, and it's so like my my parents built our their, the house I grew up in was built in the seventies, and there's their their sidewalk that well it just got redone right like a month ago. Yeah, and this one's it's it's cracked and stuff, so it's like it's been paved over certain areas, so yeah. it's like a cut in of the paw prints. It's cute, but regardless, there is a little uh, homage to Pugin in, on the porch because mm. he lived there till his old age and then um, so but they oh, they have his a little statue to him right there I love animals very sweet very sweet so the monument's great if you go there the food's great I would I highly recommend going there but it turns out that Pugin likes to show up <gasps> now yes. and play with children specifically. Uh, yes. So people will wa- go to dinner and see children that are there having dinner playing with something they can't see. This is the palate cleanser we need after the That's story right. I just told. So That's thank right. you. You're welcome. Um, so he's he plays with children quite a bit, it seems Aww. like. And mostly just he's children good see him. I know. He's good. He's sweet. But he's, he's not. Mostly, mostly just children mostly just children. see him? Mm-hmm. Because they have the sight. The sight. And also, like, why is he going to mess around with people that aren't going to play with him? Like, Yeah. Yeah. Adults are no fun. No, but the kids don't know that it's weird, so they just play with yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, keep th- keeping that in mind, Pukin is not the only spirit seen at the restaurant. Oh, Pukin's portal. <laughs> uh, actually, this is far, far before oh. Pukin. Oh, okay. okay. Around 1900... 
Around 1900, Zoe St. Amand and her sister Elizabeth lived in the house. Zoe, a school teacher, Elizabeth was also a school teacher. They looked every bit the spinster. Zoe often wore long black Puritan style dresses and round wire rimmed glasses. Mm -hmm. The sisters seemed to prefer the company of each other and kept mostly to themselves. I Elizabeth like them. was kind of the opposite of. Zoe. Elizabeth was blonde and she wore light colors. And so they perfectly complemented each other. I love it. My assumption was when I first heard the story that two spinster sisters were living together mm -hmm. and adored each other mm -hmm. until they and they died. They, yeah. I was like, lesbians. That's some fried green tomatoes going That's on right. There, that's what I just completely nothing. assumed slash wanted to have happen. Yeah, I know. In my movie, that's what would happen. As right. long as they're not actually sisters. Right. Yeah. And several of us were like, Sisters. sisters because just... back in the day you'd just be like no no we're totally sisters right but yeah. apparently the uh, uh, find a grave proved me wrong damn it yeah well it's still cute it's still cute to think about but yeah and it's cute that they're sisters they really were sisters uh yeah find a grave their information comes from censuses a lot and uh, theirs yeah. did so it had their parents information on there and mm -hmm. when they were born and all that stuff so they were just sisters. It's well, fine. Well, that ship. It's not as exciting, but <laughs> it was still cute. It's still cute. It's still cute. It's still adorable. They were best just friends. Two little ladies being yes. best friends. Yes. Just, I love it. I love it. There's something um, so fucking cute about that. Elizabeth was the elder sister. She was born in 1877 and died in 1945. Zoe was born in 1879 and died in 1954. Okay. Here's a picture of them. I'll put it up on the... Oh, They look fun. Don't they? Uh, so... When Elizabeth died in 1945, Zoe became incredibly lonely. She was depressed, and her mental state may have deteriorated, depending upon the story. Some stories say she just got really sick and was sent to a hospital. Some people say she ran around the street in the middle of the night, and so for her own safety, they had to put her in a hospital. Oh. It depends on how you hear it. Yeah. But either way, you know, like the running around the street, call, calling out her sister's name, Yada, yada, yada. Um, finally, neighbors took her to St. Francis Hospital to live out the remainder of her days. Today, Zoe's body rests in St. Lawrence Cemetery at 60 Union Avenue, <laughs> just north of downtown, where her spirit is, however, seems to be debatable. Ooh. There have been numerous sightings of Zoe St. Amanda Pugin's porch. Uh, employees have seen her, and it's not outside the realm of possibility to see a diner or to run from the building looking like they've just seen a ghost. The uh, One of the stories from somebody who works there, it's been told di from different perspectives. Maybe it was the, the father or somebody of Bonnie or um, the owner. Bobby. Bobby, thank you. Uh, was there, had a cup of, co of tea or coffee, Went to go do something, came back, the cup was gone. Made another cup of coffee, came back, the cup was back. Uh, stuff like that happens quite a bit. A lot of stuff in the kitchen, it seems like. From little what I ladies hear. with a sense of humor. That's I love right. It. That's right. Um, also, the restrooms upstairs, which is further away. I was like, oh, yeah, she haunts the ladies' restroom. What a big surprise. <laughs> uh, but no. I was really wanting this to be true. I don't blame you. It's just, yeah. you know. It's... Yeah. But it's all right. It's fine. Sisters are fine. There have been numerous sightings of Zoe Santa Monica Pugin's porch. Um, I just said that. I skipped that part. Okay. Interestingly, many people who have seen Zoe have reported that they had no idea that she was a ghost. She'll walk into the mm -hmm. ladies' restroom, like I said, and the other women won't 
realize that she's not simply an elderly customer until they see her in an old photograph on the wall. On the wall downstairs, it's kind of, you walk in and you go to the porch and then you walk into the building and there's a stairway that goes upstairs and then there's a hallway and then that takes you through to the bar and hostess, right? Um, and in that hallway, there's a picture of Pugin and there's a picture of the sisters and all that stuff. I love this little lady ghost is probably wandering around going, whose dog is this? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I like to believe they get along. Um, many people who have seen Zoe have reported that they had uh, no idea. God, I keep saying the same things. Uh, it's because of the font. So small. I didn't and plan on that. It's and so the strong. alcohol. <laughs> alcohol. Uh, so... Um, the that, other thing they see in the, it was Zoe. Now, they Zoe see her in the restroom. The, Zoe was the older sister. Zoe's the younger the, sister. But she so outlived. She outlived the, the, Elizabeth. the older by yes. quite a few years. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, so what I've heard as well is that some women will go in and see her in the mirror in the reflection mm. and look behind him and nobody's there. Ooh. And so, which I think is rude too. It's like in the back of a car and in a mirror, it's rude. Yeah. It's scary. Like, it's rude. Don't but do maybe that. maybe it's the only way they can they can appear to something. I don't care. It's still rude. No, <laughs> I disagree with it. I think it's tacky. Do better is what I I'm mean, saying. I mean, you know, she's looking at the strange woman that's in her bathroom going like, what are you doing here? I don't remember yeah. you letting in. I mean, it was her house. Yeah. But there's like, two stalls in there. Bitch, choose one. <laughs> she's probably like, Sorry, Zoe. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. She didn't show herself You're to really me, mad so at better. her for not being a lesbian. I'm just going to say. I am. I'm a little mad at her. <laughs> Sisters are fine. She wasn't not a lesbian just because she had a That's sister. That's true. I so didn't think about know. it that way. She could have still been a lesbian. Yeah, maybe. All maybe. Right. All right. I'll accept it. Um, <laughs> Survey says. Sure. <laughs> Why not? Guess. Okay. So across the street is Mills House Hotel. It's a beautiful hotel. Very Ooh. like lo I mean Charleston, it's just character I everywhere. Say, Charleston is a gorgeous city. Yeah. Uh and so, it, of course like, this hotel is super haunted. It's got that as well. Spanish like Angelou yes. South mix, just such a great So look. good. Little French. It's very yeah. New Orleans at the yeah. same time. Yeah, 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 so good. Um so what happens is people from across the street at that hotel will see a woman upstairs after the hotel after the restaurant's closed so they'll see a woman walking around and think that maybe she's locked in it's always oh, they always yeah. see an older woman and the cops have been called so many times that they now pretty much don't go if people report seeing an old woman in there now does anyone live in the house or is it just no, a restaurant it's just now? A restaurant. so no one lives there yep. like so the proprietor doesn't like live upstairs mm -mm. or anything like that so it's so it's just down once it's, it's closed there's no it's one closed there. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Like and most people will see someone on the top floor or someone just walking wow. around looking out the window and so they think cool. that she's trapped. So they'll call the police or, yeah. you know, they'll report the it to the, so to the Zoe restaurant. Call. It's another Zoe call. Right. Have right. Like a code for and it. I hope that they still go because it's like, wouldn't that be the best place to rob? It's like, just dress up as an old woman and the cops won't even come. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Don't. Speaking of old woman, sorry, just out of nowhere. Did you watch, you watched uh, Nuke's top five? Uh, oh my god, we talked week. about it on the ghosticles. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. old woman in the mausoleum. Oh, I still or, can't. God, it was so oh it still fucks with If you me. haven't seen it, if you didn't listen to Ghosticles and here's talking about it, go and listen watch like Nuke's top five scary people. Yeah. It's the more recent it's one that came out last one. week, and it's really yeah. there's a really good one. There'll be one when this comes out. There'll be a new one. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Watch okay. that one too, because I'm sure it'll be. Because I'm great. sure it's great. Okay, so anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to take that detour. It's all right. Okay, so best basically the best. Uh, time to get a glimpse of Zoe is late at night when the restaurant is nearly empty. 
Mm. Um, and there have been, there has been a story of a woman who saw an older woman in the restaurant. She was trying to close up the restaurant and she told her, you know, it was a hostess. I think she was trying to tell her it's time to go. We need to close up. And the woman walked to another room and she went to go get help. And when she came back, the woman was gone. The door had been locked. It was still locked. They don't know how she got out. And then they were like, this is who it is. And I think the woman closed. <laughs> She's like, it's time to go. And so I was like, yes, yes, it is. It get is. the fuck out of my house. Yeah, it's mine. Go. <laughs> I've got to freak out the people across the street. <laughs> I have a schedule to keep. Yes. So one of the other places, and we did this didn't hit in any of the ghost tours, but everybody talked about it. And now I wish we had done the ghost tour there too, because it's, oh, no, wait, this one's different. Sorry, at the jail, I wish we had done. Mm. Um, and so I'm going to talk more about that next time. Okay. The jail, okay. because I really wish we had gone. Because everybody well, who goes to go is back. like, you and I. Absolutely. We've both been there before, but never together. Right. That's true. Magic happens then when we're together. We'll see all sorts of stuff. Because yes. our power is combined. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to be next time. Mm. And, I'll, and then you'll be like, we have to go. Mm-hmm. All right. So the other thing that we walked by was the old exchange in Provost Dungeon. So. This is an historic <laughs> building. <laughs> Extremely historic. It's not like you said unhistoric. This is an unhistoric building. No, it's un, an, 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 an. It's a historic building. Uh, at the center, it's at the intersection of Broad Street and East Bay, and it is uh, one of the most significant buildings in the country. Mm. The old exchange building. It's a majestic Palladian style building. You would love it. Uh, you've probably seen it. It was built by the British in 1774 at 122 East Bay Street. It was used as a custom house and mercantile exchange and served as the political and cultural center of Charlestown when it was Charlestown and not Charleston. The building is seeped in American history. It was here that the Declaration of Independence was publicly read to South Carolinians. I think it was the first time it was read. Wow. Was there. I think you're right. Yeah. Here, South Carolina ratified the U.S. Constitution. Cool. Here, George Washington held banquets in the Great Hall. And here, below the high polish of the hardwood floors, natural light, and revolutionary beauty, lies a place where prisoners were subject to unspeakable tortures. Well, that's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde building, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, the other thing that happened on the steps of this building, where the Declaration was read and where Secession was read and all of these historic Mm -hmm. moments were read, uh, because for those who don't know, Fort Sumter and Charleston are where the Civil War started. Yes. So one of my other favorite stories is that apparently a lot of people left Charleston to go to Columbia? I can't remember. Mm. It's another C word. <laughs> Sorry, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> but uh, they left to go there because they thought Charleston would get sacked. Mm. And the Union general that was coming through didn't want to sack Charleston because his mistress lived there. So he went to the other city that started with a C instead. Wow. I enjoy that story a lot. Damn. Uh, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't research it because I want it to be true. So uh, the frying as long as I the fire, my God. I know. But the other thing that would happen on the front steps of this building would be slave auctions. So mm-hmm. that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, Eric, Gross. my friend Eric, told me that while we were there. He's like, oh, so slave auctions. And I was like, way to bring down the room. <sighs> um, <laughs> so the Provost Dungeon predates the old exchange building by almost a century. Hmm. Yeah, from 1680 to 1767, Charleston was a walled city to protect the prosperous town from all sorts of invaders, British, Spanish, and pirates. Pirates. There were pirates like a motherfucker in Charleston. Oh, yeah. That is in textbooks, just like that. 
<laughs> the Court of Guard building originally sat atop the dungeon but was demolished and the remaining seawall lowered in 1769. When you enter the dungeon, you can see what's left of the original wall. Mm. Under British control, patriots were chained to the walls of the dungeon alongside pirates and marauders and left to die from disease, injury, parasites, and rats. Because it was below the waterline, so the edge of the building used to be the seawall, yeah. right? Yeah. The dungeon would sometimes flood when the tide came in. It wasn't mm -hmm. every time, but it would flood. So what would happen if you were chained to the wall and maybe weren't a tall person like yourself mm. is you would drown. You'd be chained to the wall and drown. Ugh. And then let's say you were chained to the wall at 6'4". Uh, you survive the flooding, but you're but chained to the wall. I'm now chained next to someone who didn't. In a, in a marinade of corpses. Oh, Oh yeah, yeah, God. and you just you just soak in all that bacteria as it slowly oh, drained that's away. The worst kind of bouillabaisse. And I know, and then they'd just be left on the ground, and you'd be in there with them until they came every few days and to I love it. take the bodies out. I, I love that their thing is like it doesn't flood all the time. Not all the time, <laughs> but they certainly didn't do anything to prevent anything God from dying. Damn. Yet. Yep. Uh, the dead, yeah, the dead were often left with the living putrefying in the stifling, humid, stale air. I mean, it was a dungeon. They weren't fucking around. That shit was legit. Dungeon. Like, dungeon. we put you in there, you're done. Yeah, that's right. That's why done. <laughs> I like it. I just I like made it that connection. I'm like, that's what they called it. Dungeon. Oh, they just spelled it wrong. They're done. Dungeon. I get it now. Um, the whole building is allegedly haunted, though. Um, the well, sectors yeah. upstairs in the old exchange are typically far less aggressive than the ones downstairs. Because uh -huh. the staff wears Revolution period clothing, it's sometimes difficult to tell who's alive and who's not. <laughs> Visitors have reported approaching who they believe to be a staff member, only to watch in horror as the staff disappears when addressed. Oh, it's like being in like a, it's like being in an Apple store. I mean, it's coming. <laughs> but they don't even take your name to ignore later. <laughs> in the dungeon, reports include the usual ghostly occurrences, moans, cries, screams, chains, that whole thing. But uh, some have seen chains that restrict visitor entry being tugged or pulled. A few unlucky visitors have been pushed and even choked. Mm. There's um, a video called Low Country Proud Haunted, the old exchange of Provost Dungeon that has some first account yeah. uh, descriptions of what happened. Oof. The old Oof. exchange in Provost Dungeon is open to the public every day from 9 to 5. 9 to 5. Yes. And then you can take uh, a tour... I think they go inside after vi some some of them will go inside and some of them are just outside. So it okay. depends on the tour. You have to really look into the tours. Hmm. Um, so that is one of the major haunts. And that's down the street. Um, that was in our walking tour. Um, and last, so in this tour, we also went to this place where Annabelle Lee lived of Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle yeah. Lee. Yeah. And it is rumored that the soldier that she fell in love with was actually Edgar Allan Poe. They would meet in cemeteries at night, and I mean that's just sounds caught. like something Poe would do. I know, totally. So his, um, the father of the girl sent her away, and that's where she caught yellow fever and she died, uh, which is a true story. Uh, yeah. um, and so they think this Annabelle Lee is the Annabelle Lee that Poe writes about. Uh, I want to believe it. I do too. I do Poor too. Poe. Poor Poe. I know. What a life. What a, People are what like, a... oh, his fiction's so dark. Well, fucking yeah. I mean. 
Exactly. It's not like he's not it's like he's going to so, write chicken and I'll be soup honest, for the I fucking like gothic soul. When we got to the uh, prov- the provostal exchange building, um, I felt like there was like a female presence around me until we got to the house where then well, I heard you'd the be the one to attract it because there's a family connection. Right, right. So I was like, ooh, the darkness has maintained. I love oh, it. The sable deity night has right. touched me on the shoulder. Heavens. <clears throat> then we went to a few other places. The tours were great, but we ended at the Dock Street Theater. Ooh, theaters are always Theater, haunted. Always. So, on February 12th, 1736, the Dock Street Theater opened on the corner of Church Street and Dock Street, which is now known as Queen Street. The historic Dock Street Theater was the first building in America built exclusively to be used for theatrical performances. <clears throat> it was a big deal. Flora, the first opera performance in America, took place at the Dog Street Theater. Cool. I know. So it was built in 17, 1736. It was probably destroyed in the Great Fire of 1740, though. A lot so of great it, fires in those days. Yes. only It only existed for about four years. Um, it And that fire of 1740 destroyed many of the buildings in Charleston's French Quarter. Mm-hmm. In 1809, so 60 years or so later, 70 years, the Planters Hotel was built on this site. And in 1835, the wrought iron balcony and sandstone columns of the Church Street facade were added. It's a beautiful building. Mm-hmm. It's super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of notable persons worked and patronized the Planters Hotel, including the noted 19th century actor, very famous family, Junius Brutus Booth. Uh-huh. 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 That would be John Wilkes Booth's father. Mm-hmm. And his brother, of course, was Edwin Booth. We've discussed them previously. Uh-huh. uh-huh. His father did a lot of shows in Charleston. Um, Robert Smalls was an African-American Civil War hero who stole a steamboat in the harbor and sailed it out past the Confederate-held Fort Sumter and turned it over to the blockading Union fleet. He served as a waiter in the hotel's dining room prior to the war. Sweet. Yeah. Charleston's Planter Punch was first introduced here as well. (laughs) After the Civil War, the Planters Hotel fell into disrepair and was slated for demolition. But in 1935, the present-day theater was constructed constructed within the shell of the Planters Hotel. The hotel's grand foyer became the grand foyer of the theater, and the hotel's dining room now serves as the box office lobby. The theater's new stage house and auditorium were built in the hotel's courtyard. The historic Dock Street Theater reopened for a third time on March 18, 2010, after a three-year, $19 million renovation by the city of Charleston. Goddamn. It the now show has, must go on. Right? It has all of the modern bells and whistles. All the bells so, and whistles. And whistles. So at least two people are assumed to haunt the Dock who, Street Theater. Who, who? First, believe it or not, is Junius Booth. Okay. Because he worked there so much. That was, I mean, people clearly, assume, especially on actors, the third floor. Actors please. also they they develop a particular you know uh, affinity for a certain venue. Like right. when they do, that's like I it guess becomes if they like do it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it becomes like where they feel most themselves, mm-hmm. and so it makes sense that you know, given the opportunity, they would hang out there in death just because it's like this was me. This is my. This I, is what this yeah. is, I identify with this place. Right, and it seems like a lot of them were reported. After 1935, which is when it was became a theater again. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, um, Junius Booth is said to haunt it, um, which I don't know if I buy it because the theater was really openly open for about four or five years before it caught on fire. 
And then, you know, it took another 50, 60, yeah. 70 years for it to be turned into a hotel. So I don't know, maybe, maybe. But, but maybe, but maybe he a did. Male, in the, maybe in that four, a male four figure years, is seen often. Four years is a it long time. Be. It could be. Uh, you know, and, um, it might, and it might have been in the time before everything went horribly wrong in right. his life. And so that. it's like, hey, remember, it's like, okay, this was this was things were good. Yeah. Four right. years that I spent at that theater were the were best the years best of my years. life. Before my sons went insane. <sighs> Well, uh, one of them anyway. Well, and he had a kind of a crazy life anyway. Mm -hmm. genius. The Booth family were fascinating, fascinating yes, family. Yes, they were. So the second haunt is a woman commonly referred to as Nettie Dickerson. So the tour guide told us this huge story about how she had moved to Charleston and um, had taken up with this man and become his mistress. And she wanted him to marry her. And so he was getting a divorce and she agreed to marry and like, then they were going to get married and he started taking her to these social events and the wife found out about it. And even though they were going to get divorced, she's like, I'm not going to fucking divorce you now because you've been making a fool of me. Mm. And if you do divorce me, I'm going to tell everybody all the shit about your family. And she told this to the guy's Ooh, uncle shit. and the uncle was like, fuck this. You got to stop messing around with this bitch and go back to your wife. <laughs> and so this is me summing up. Um, I love your summation. Thank you. And so then he took her to a show and on the balcony told her we can't do this anymore. And she freaked out at him and was yelling at him. And that's when she was struck by lightning through her chest. She fell on the floor and confessed while dying that she wasn't really Nettie Dickerson, that she had stolen the identity from a woman, but he actually, the guy actually said her name was, uh, and she was connected to what's her name from New Orleans. Marie Laveau? Um, Laveau, yeah. He said oh, no, that, new, uh, not Laveau. Uh, uh, um, the still, the, the murderer? Yeah. Uh, not Laveau. That's Marie Laveau was the, the voodoo queen. Uh, oh, right. No, no, no. Um, yeah, not Laveau. Uh, uh, La Lorie. La Lorie. So, yeah, she, that was her name and that she had killed this relative and stolen her identity and stolen all of her things and assumed her identity and moved to Charleston. And that's, that's not who she really was. And nobody knew who she really was. But Ugh, actors, it's a great, story. it's a great story. <laughs> it is a great story. I'm, I feel like the, being struck by lightning through the chest and then having the opportunity being able to, to talk. A it, bit, that's a bit. It seem... That's jumping the shark. But right. maybe there was a thunderclap and she but had a heart a attack story. or something. It is a great story. Well, it just the, it's the a fact. It's a fantastic it, story. Yeah, is she is rumored to have died in the like. I think right before the Civil War, maybe after, right after, around those times. So not, not when it was a theater. So how could they have gone and seen a show when it was a, it was a hotel? Yeah. Right. Um, also, um, I'll, I'll report, I've seen nothing about that. It just seems made up. Um, it, it seems pretty like, yeah, but I, I, haven't I don't even, buy it. I haven't even seen it on ghost story stuff online, like that particular story. Mm-hmm. And that's a good story. So if it's been told by more than one person, it you'd find it somewhere. Yeah, I didn't find any of that shit. Mm -hmm. What I did find was that there was a Nettie who was 25 years old when she came to Charleston from the upcountry around 1840. She was drawn to the excitement and sophistication of the commerce and was determined to find love and happiness. The only problem was she was 25 and primarying age at the time was 17. Yeah, if you're 25 and not married, you're already... She's a spinster. Yeah. She was already a spinster. So she was... You should was... go to, to, to the old women and... Yeah, right? <laughs> Become you their third. Dog. Their um, Right. She was pretty. She was smart. There were plenty of men willing to take her as a mistress. But no one seemed interested enough to marry her, especially given her low social status. Man. One of the stories 
that is told about her is that uh, penniless and heartbroken, she found work at St. Philip's Church as a clerk. She received room and board and a small clothing stipend, but had little else. Despite having a good relationship with the priest, Nettie was never accepted among Charleston's antebellum elite. During thunderstorms, she would climb to the top of the church's bell tower and watch the thunderheads roll in from the sea, and she felt comfort there. Everyone bustling along Charleston streets appeared equal from her perch. Hmm. Down the street, she could see the renowned Planters Hotel. Charleston's aristocratic men enjoyed drinking and sex workers on weeknights, never missing a Sunday at St. Philip's with their perfectly proper and upscale wives. <laughs> she was incredulous that they were more highly regarded than she would ever be, and she began to resent it. She quit her job at the church, though, and the priest tried to discourage her. Soon after, she got dressed up in a stunning red gown and entered the Planters Hotel to begin her life as a sex worker. Mm. Um, the general consensus is that she is a sex worker who wore a red dress. Mm. That mm. Because what happened with the Planters Hotel is it started having to compete with some of the newer, fancier, schmancier hotels. Oh. And uh, for a while, it became a place where sex workers... A den of iniquity. Yes. We're like, well, fuck, it's happening here anyway. We might as well might go as ahead well. and... Advertise. Yeah. Um, attractive and witty, she did well in her new trade. She still attended services every Sunday at St. Philip's, often drawing stares or rude comments from her clients' wives. She became outright confrontational. When she'd catch a sneer, she'd walk right up to the woman and gregariously say hello, often complimenting the woman on her choice of husband. <laughs> Not surprisingly, men began to turn her away. When the money started to run low, Nettie again sought refuge and comfort in the humid coastal storms. She'd stand on the second floor balcony of Planters Hotel, letting the fierce gusts of wind sweep her flowing hair and whip her dress. She was angry and depressed, and she started to use her balcony as a soapbox from which she ranted, raved, and antagonized those below. She I kind of love her. I know, right? She stopped going to church, so the priest came to visit during a storm, knowing she'd be on the balcony. As she screamed and wailed, he pleaded with her to come down and let him help. She glared at him, clutching the balcony railing. You can't help me, she screamed. As if on cue, a lightning bolt hit the railing, electrocuting Nettie and bringing her desperate sorrow to a tragic and horrific end. Mm. That's just, that's a more specific story. And that's an even better story. It's a, it's a better story, right? And that's the thing. It's, it's a like, better story. Why are you making shit up when these stories, and <clears throat> and most of them go this direction. That Yeah, that she was just. Yeah, yeah. Because that's um, how I'm going to die. I'm going to get struck by lightning. Right. that's me. I yeah. get, I've nearly been struck by lightning multiple times, that's but true. I'd love to watch the storm. Don't get struck by lightning. That would make gonna, me so sad. I'm gonna try. Um, I'll wait till I'm like some. Some of the stories. Something. Thank you. Some of the stories say that she fell off the balcony. Some stories leave out the church altogether. Um, most include balcony drama of some sort, mm -hmm. and the majority of them do say that she wasn't struck through her chest, but she was holding the railing when the building was struck by electricity, and that's why, mm. or struck by lightning, and that's how she got struck. Mm. Um. Let's see. It's Okay, so based upon everything I read, it seems that there was a woman who worked as a sex worker in the hotel, and her name was Nettie. As a story, any story saying she'd gone to the theater, of course, is bullshit, because it wouldn't have been a theater. Here's the Dock Street Theater, just a, a look at it. It's, oh, it's gorgeous. Cool? Yeah. Um, so since the 1930s, performers have reported seeing her still in her elegant red gown, gliding across, across the second floor hallway. The reports indicate that she's lost her looks, though. They describe a zombie-like figure with wild eyes and a horrific expression. 
Sightings are said to be semi-frequent. For example, Isaiah Nesbitt, a, form, a foreman working on renovations in 2008, reported seeing her every single day before work. Wow. When sightings do occur, she appears to be cut off at the knee or lower. Mm. Most explain it away, citing renovations that were done in 1936 when the second floor was raised between 6 and 12 inches. Hmm. Nettie, unaware of the structural change, appears to be walking on the original flooring. Yeah, Some okay. people will say she's cut off at the waist. This is the dramatic story, right? Oh, she's cut off at the waist, so you only see her walking, like, moving around at the waist. But the floors weren't raised an entire half of a person. <laughs> and if they had been, it would have fucked up the windows. Like, you would see the floor in the windows, right? Right, right, right. So that's not the truth either. But people do see her pretty regularly, mostly on the second floor. Oh, huh. Now... What I have seen a couple in a sev- couple several different places is that she affects the electricity, and that's what the guy was telling us while we were there. She has a tendency that they blame her specifically for the ele- electrical issues hmm. because she was struck by lightning. Hmm. Well, I am listening to the guy who I'm now very disappointed in for all of the lying. <laughs> But I had a good time that night. It's fine. He was against. (laughs) Now I have to look up all the shit he said and find out if it's true. It's very frustrating. So not that I don't love it. But um, the, I was, I was, I had taken some pictures with my camera on my phone and I started filming Mm -hmm. just for a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And while he was talking, I was looking. You were out on the street. We were on the street, across the street from the theater. And the theater is three stories and it has like four or five windows across. And then the second floor has that lacy balcony. And then the third floor doesn't have a balcony or anything. It's just the windows across. And so three lights in that top floor were on. And I think four lights on the second floor Mm -hmm. were on. And those were, those are the only ones in the video. So I'm, I'm filming it. And in the the center light, so it was two lights, I'm sorry, on the top floor were on. And the most center light was flickering when mm. we came up. And everybody mm. was like, ooh, it's flickering. Ooh. And I was like, it seems like a ceiling fan is on. So I was filming it <laughs> to oh, yeah, show okay. that it was just a ceiling fan making that kind of flickery thing. And so it's like six seconds, if that, of me filming. And I realize that as I'm filming on my phone and looking at it, the light is on, but where it starts on in my phone, it turns off. The light in the fucking window turns off. Only and I'm on your phone. Only on my phone. But I look at the window. You're looking at it with your bare with your bare eye. Yeah, and it's on. And it's time. on, but in the in your phone, mm-hmm. it turned off. So I turned what the off. Fuck? I I don't know. So I turned off my phone really quickly, and I and I I was in um, portraits. So I turned it to landscape. I'm like, let me do this again, and as I do it. Um, it's like some other woman is kind of freaking out in the tour uh-huh. and uh, we're kind of laughing about it. So we're letting him talk and I'm kind of listening and I push record again and I do it landscape style. So I think then you could see three windows yeah. on the top, but yeah. you know, the, the far left one was off. I, I think that's how it is. And the lights in the second floor and I'm filming it. And the entire time I just watch the window in the building. I don't look at the phone at all. I'm just looking at the window. That light was on the entire time nothing passed in front of it no, nothing no, no, there's no nothing the up window, there there's like nobody that. no bodies in front of anything okay. and when i look back at the video it is on and then it slowly turns off almost like a fade it looks like something walks in it looks like something comes over it like a right. cloud or almost, i mean like not yeah. it's not Which, the, it's just like it's just it, the it light doesn't be a go, person because the, the window's too big the window's too big like the whole window just kind of it's like a i don't know how to describe because i saw the video you sent it to me 
pretty immediately. You're like, oh, yeah. shit. I was like, what yeah. the fuck? And yeah. So it, it goes off slowly. Yeah. And then a little bit later, it comes right back on. It's like something passed over it. Yeah, or something. That's, what, that's kind of how it goes off. It yes. looks like it dims from left to right or like right to left, whatever the direction uh-huh. is. I can't remember. And then and then it just looks like something walks in mm-hmm. front of that light. Yeah. But it's or not it a shade or, or blocks it somehow, like but in it, passing. It it's was only on the weird. phone. It was only not... on the goddamn phone. And it was only that window. It wasn't any of the other windows. All yeah. the other windows that yeah. had light on stayed on. And I should say, like before people assume like, well, it's something in the phone, like something passed in front of the lens. Yeah. It only passes. It looks like it's from behind the window. Yeah, like no light comes out of that window after that point. Yeah, yeah. And until the light comes back on. So, but no other detail of, of outside around that window is obscured. So it's right. not something on the lens. Yeah. Or it doesn't seem to be like it could be something Alexis on the lens. Alexis filmed uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. And it starts off in her video and then comes back on slowly. Yeah. And then the woman that had freaked out had seen the same thing in hers. And that's why she was like freaking out because she was watching on her phone, on her recording, it go off while she's standing and looking at the light that's very clearly on. And in the video that she's recording, it's off. It was really weird. That's, it's very it weird. Very it's very weird. weird. Now, I will say, because when you're looking at it with a naked eye, it looks kind of like it's flickering, you said? Yeah, but it just looks like there's a fan on. It doesn't yeah. look like it's flickering. I wonder, and I'm, this is just my my skeptical brain coming in like what if because i don't know if there's a way to do this but is there some way maybe our listeners know is there some way some way you can manipulate a light so that it will appear different on a digital recording than it will to the naked eye right is there because it may I be know. that i mean like, who knows because it makes but me think seems of like the... a lot of that seems like and... a lot of expense to go to for so some walking tour can have a right. thing you know yeah it, know. and it also would make me think they would have people come in to investigate Right, and they seem right. the the theater people, the people who work at the theater, seem irritated by people who come inside. For those. Um, <laughs> well, kids are trying to put on but, shows. Or is there just something like that happens that is like the, um, what is it the, the dress where some people would see gold and white and some people right, would see blue right, and black, right. and like is there something some sort of weird phenomenon that the phone is picking up that does that? But why just that window? And why just because? I mean, I felt yeah, like a weird. fan going weird. on. It wouldn't. It was very strange. I've I'll seen the video. The video. the video was very weird. Yeah. Like the, the video does not look like a fan. It doesn't look like the lights just cu- cutting off and on and off or flickering. It looks like something passes in front of that entire light. Yeah. So like just for, just at that window, and it's really fucking weird. It is weird. I will definitely put it on the Instagram yeah. so you guys can see it. It's cool. Yeah, it but was it, really even cool. cooler is the fact that you could not that to you to naked eye. It just looked like the window right. was and, lit. The whole time and the entire tour was like the light was on the whole time like it was an entire tour of people being like Fuck no up. i was looking at the light never went off because if it had gone off we all would have been like "Ooh, who turned off the light no it right and the, i can hear the crowd the other tour uh the other tour goers with you in the video and none of them are reacting at yeah. all to it yeah. and everyone's looking at that window because that's what he's talking about mm-hmm. That's oh, so strange. It was really strange. So strange. Cool. It was really cool. It was really, really cool. Like one time out of a hundred tours, you might have something like that happen. I know. And that's it was kind really of, neat. Oh, you got a little bit of, a little, 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 little uh, spooky, spooky. A little spooky. It was cool. It was mm, really good. Mm. And then we giggled about it the entire way back. <laughs> You're like, we did it. We did, we did, it. It. We did it. We had something great. Yeah, I let the tour guide exaggerate or lie. That's fine. If it you brings had, out some experience. weird stuff, it was really cool, though. And, and maybe so. it was the ghost going, motherfucker, that's not the story. Right. He's lying. <laughs> He's lying. <laughs> I mean, Nettie sounds like the sort of person that would call him out on that shit. Right? If she could, right? From the maybe balcony. that's why we were across the street. He knew. Ooh, he knew. He's like, yeah. yeah, she likes to, she chastises me a lot for, you know. Yeah. Right. Telling the wrong story. Uh, oof. Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, anyway, that's my Charleston story. We'll oh. go visit some more, and I'll do some more in-depth because this other story is so big. I want to make sure that I look all the facts up. What are you, you going to tell us next week? Can you give it's us a hint? It's the jail and yeah. Lavinia. Yeah, Lavinia. Yeah. Ooh! Yeah. So that'll be next week, but that was, you know, just a little summary of my little trip to Why Charleston. Not? It was great. Yeah, it was and great. the convention was amazing. It was such a great convention. So. Sounds like it. Um, but anyway, uh, nice. and other news. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the Patreon. We have the Patreon. We talked Ooh. about it in our ghosticles, but uh, we want to bring it up again. Um, our Patreon is just school intentions. There are links on the website um, and Twitter and all of that stuff. Uh, but you can check it out. And we have four different tiers for all of your ghostical needs, um, <laughs> whereas the $5 tier will give you two extra ghostical episodes a month um, and four downloadable ghost stories that we have previously read. They're at the beginning of episodes, so yeah. we'll separate those out for you. Uh, and um, we have more stuff coming along down the down the pipe um and so thank you guys for being so patient with us getting together thank you all of the supporters who've already thank you so much patreon has been um great and uh you know it's just helping us continue this little adventure that we're having such a good we love doing it and you guys make it possible so thank you thank you thank you thank thank you you. we so appreciate it Website is ghoulintentions.com. Instagram is ghoulintentions. Twitter is ghoulintent. There's a Facebook fan page called Ghoul Intentions. And uh, you can also send in your stories to us. For cold you know, we haven't seen in, in a while that I like to see more of. I want to see people take pictures of themselves wearing the shirts. Oh, yeah. We yeah, need some more shirts. We we, especially for and Halloween. We're working on, on. We need some more shirts, too. We need, we need some, like, yeah. hashtag in my movie. Yeah, right. Something <laughs> like that. I find myself saying that all the time. In these my days. movie. Yeah, I know. In my movie. It's true. <laughs> That's true. Nettie was yelling at your tour guide. That's right. Um, what are you doing? That's what she's doing. Now. That's right. But anyway, thank you guys for all the support for yeah. various, various ways and reasons. And Y'all we are just, the motherfucking best. We love it. We love you guys. And remember, it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.